I remember right after we, see the right before or right after we hired Jake, Scott said, well, I'll probably never get to lead singing anymore. Well, don't ever say never. <laughs> uh, Jake and Anna, uh, most of you know by now, uh, made a quick trip up to Pennsylvania uh, for his grandfather's funeral. Uh, so that's why they're not with us today. And then Granddad and Mimi, a.k.a. Tommy and Pat, I think they're having grandkid camp or something like that. So um, you get the B team today, and hopefully the B team's doing a good job. <laughs> uh, if you will stand, I would like to read from John chapter 6, <clears throat> beginning in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? But Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Maybe that'll make a little more sense in a minute. Um, the passage that we're looking at today has certainly had its share of discussion and interpretation. Although some scholars dispute what is actually meant in this passage, most agree, and I tend to share their sentiment, that John understands Jesus' language here to refer to the Lord's Supper. Unlike the other gospel writers, John doesn't describe the actual meal at the Last Supper. We have references or allusions to it here as well as in chapter 13. And this is not because that he thinks it doesn't matter or that he wants to play it down. It is because he thinks it matters so much that it's important to see it as affecting the whole gospel story. One reason I think that we, uh, that we tend to look at this as a reference to the Lord's Supper is Jesus' language and action uh, with the bread earlier in the chapter, in the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 11, Jesus says, or John says, that Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them. That's language that all the other three gospel writers use as well. And then another reason is the allusion to the story of the Israelites in Moses' time. That God gave them manna, excuse me, to eat as they wandered in the wilderness. And then when they got tired of it and demanded meat or flesh, he gave them quail. And then also Paul, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, and the Hebrew writer as well in chapter 10, verse 1, tell us that many of the things that were done or that God instituted in the Old Testament were or are a shadow of of things that are to come. So literally, what Jesus is saying, I am the manna and the quail 
come down from heaven, and I will give myself for the life of the world, and those who partake of me will live eternally. Those who do this will be people of the true Exodus. In the original Exodus, the ancestors of the present Israelites had eaten the bread they were given, but they still died. This bread, this bread of life, which is Jesus himself, is given and given to be broken in death so that those who eat of it may not die, but have eternal life in the present and the future and be raised up on the last day. Now, we know that John's gospel different than the others. You know, the, the, uh, the other three writers talk a lot about facts. And I'm not saying that John doesn't talk about facts, but John is, John's gospel is much more kind of a poetry, uh, high Christology. I had to even look up that word, what that meant. But it's a field of study within Christian theology, which is primarily concerned with the nature and person of Jesus. And when you, when you think about it, as you read through that passage, you realize that John is much more about Jesus, his person, uh, what he does, and who he is. It's rich metaphorical inner, uh, imagery. But then one uh, commentator that I was reading, and that kind of puzzled me, but said it's also known for its redundancy. And I thought, well, what in the world does he mean by that? But Jesus is the bread of life, or the eternal bread come down from heaven. And this chapter alone is mentioned 13 times. Four times in the text that we just read. And so John's repetitiveness means that it's important. He must be redundant and repetitive in order to keep hammering into his readers, us, and into the people of the time that when he says bread, he's not talking about flour, water, and yeast. He's talking about himself, something that has come down from heaven. What is John's thesis statement? I know it's probably not written out clear, but I think we all know it if we begin to look at it. In chapter 1, starts out, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word, I'm sorry, and the <laughs> Word was with God, and the was God. And then when you drop down to verse 14, what does it say? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John's whole intent is to train us in the expectation that now that the Word has become flesh, we can expect so much more. Back up in verse 26, back again up to the miracle. Jesus said, or right after the miracle, he said, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. The people who ate missed the sign that Jesus, or that was pointing to Jesus. The sign was to point to him. Instead, they got full of food and went back to how things were before. They went back to the literal level and missed the depth and the riches that were right in front of them. And by the end of the conversation, Jesus is telling them that they ate the wrong thing. All of the conversation since the miracle has been about bread, explaining it, defining it, identifying it, but it really hasn't been about the bread at all. It's been about Jesus and who he is. And it's as if he's gradually and patiently raising the bar on incarnation. He's not only a gifted teacher, a compassionate healer, 
a worker of miraculous signs and wonder, but he is also our bread. He is the bread come down from heaven. He is flesh to be eaten and blood to be drunk. We are encouraged not only to meet him, to listen to him, and to follow him, but to consume him. So incarnation is an invitation to come to this table and to eat, and even more literally, to chow down and or, if I may, pig out. We can't, now, and I'm not, I'm not meaning to be disrespectful. We can't see it in our English translation, but John uses two different words here to describe eating. Okay, now y'all be sure and tell Tommy that we did a Greek, we did a Greek word study because he'll be proud of me for doing that. But in verses 49 through 51, Jesus uses the everyday common Greek word estio, which simply means to eat. You want to go have a bite? You know, that's let's go have lunch together. Let's go eat. That's the word he uses. But then in verse 53, he changes and he uses the word trogo. Trogo, which carries with it more the idea of gnawing or chomping or gulping. It's a graphic word depicting noisy eating, the sort of eating an animal does. Now, the audibility of the eating is not really the important point. It is the urgency and desperation of the terminology. It is eating as though life depends on it because it does. We have had, we don't have either one of them anymore, (laughs) two dogs in our family. Penny was our little dachshund, and she would go to her, to where the dog food was, and she would grab about four or five pieces of food, and then she'd run over to a carpeted area. Didn't matter if it was a rug, a carpet, floor mat, whatever. And she'd drop them out and then she'd pick them up and she'd eat them one by one. You know, and she'd do that three or four times. And then Smalls, the big lab that we had, he would just kind of stand there at his bowl and he would eat. You know, not making any noise, anything like that. Just, and then he'd go away and then he might come back and he would eat a little bit until he was finished. But throw either one of them a piece of human food? <laughs> and I'm telling you, they scarfed it down like there was no tomorrow. I remember hearing, uh, and Penny, poor thing, I thought she was going to die a few times. You just, you know, choking that. And Small's doing the same thing. I mean, they just scarf at it. And I think, and again, I don't re- I, I, no, no. Uh, I know that may sound kind of disgusting and no disrespect whatsoever, but I think that is what the passage is describing. That Jesus is saying, I am it. Feast on me. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 13 through 17. There's a little short story about David that probably a lot of times goes overlooked. And three of his fighting men. They were fighting the Philistines, who at the time were occupying the town of Bethlehem. These three were known for their bravery and readiness to do whatever the king might ask. And one day, well, let's just read the text. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. 
At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the, Philippine gar- and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. And David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of the water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. You know, the fact that there was a war going on didn't faze these guys at all. They went, they broke through the enemy lines, they got the water from the well, and they brought it back to David. But David didn't drink it. He says, God forbid that I should drink the blood of these men who went at risk for their lives. David did not want to be seen to profit from their readiness to put their lives on the line for him. He poured the water out on the ground. Now the law, probably more specific, more explicit than any other thing, the law was very specific about food and drinking blood, or about certain you know, food regulations, I'm sorry, and drinking blood. And that was absolutely forbidden. And in David's mind, to drink this water would be the equivalent to drinking the blood of these men because of the risk that they were taking, and he was not going to do that. Okay, now fast forward back to our text. Jesus says, your forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. But if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will live forever. Do you want to profit from what I'm doing? You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Whereas David refused to drink the blood of his comrades, that is to profit from their risking their lives, Jesus is saying, I'm going to put my life at risk. Indeed, I will actually lose it. And you, my comrades, us, will profit from it. You will drink my blood and you will have your thirst quenched. If you do this, I will raise you up on the last day. The Lord's Supper is life-giving because it is Jesus who gives it. It is life-giving because it is Jesus himself who is given. And it is life-giving because it draws us deeper into relationship with him so that we may abide there. Verse 56. It is an intimate relationship, one in which we are not simply spectators, but participants. When we eat and drink It's as if we are taking his life into the very core of our hearts. William Barclay, one of the great theologians of the early 1900s, likened this idea to a book that you have but you've never read. I remember several years ago when The uh, uh, Purpose Driven Life came out. Rick Warren wrote this book. And somebody gave me a copy and I just kind of laid it aside. Um, I don't know why... Anytime the, the, the next big thing comes around, I'm always just kind of a little leery, and I'm so, well, I'll, I'll, I'll look at it later. And people, some of y'all came up to me and said, hey, have you heard about the Purpose Driven Life? Have you read it yet? Uh, no, I've got it, but I'm going to read it. Uh, hey, have you heard about why, why don't we do a class on the Purpose Driven Life? Well, I'm thinking about it. Uh, anyway, I let that book sit there for a couple of years, 
And then finally, I picked it up. But until I had read it, even though I owned a copy, that book was foreign to me. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what it said. Um, But once I did that, that book is probably within in my top five. It's one of my favorite books of all time because of because of what because of the message. And no longer is it foreign to me, but it's it's a part of me. It's a part of who I am. Kind of like the Princess Bride. I have a relationship with that book, like I have a relationship with that movie. Uh, Last Tuesday, we were at praise team practice, and Jake was sharing. Uh, kind of made a comment about how tedious learning a new song can be. He said, you know, you're trying to hit the right notes. You're trying to set the right tempo. You're trying to learn the words, and it's all very mechanical. And he said, it just kind of, you know, it just kind of drags. He said, it's not like singing one of the songs that you really know. And, and earlier, as we kind of started, we had sang, or we sung, How Great Thou Art. And How Great Thou Art was one I thought of, and, and It Is Well With My Soul. Those are songs that we know, we know in and out, we know the words, we know the notes. We don't have to think about them. And when we sing those songs, we can just lift our voices up in praise to God because we have a relationship with that song. The Lord's Supper, we speak of it as a sacrament. That's not a term that we use much within our tradition. But a sacrament is, is basically, it's a holy moment. A holy moment in which, in some mysterious way, we meet God and God meets us. Moments where we come in contact with Him. Baptism is a sacrament. We believe that in the waters of baptism, we come into contact with the blood of Christ and are clothed with Him. Galatians 3.27 and Acts 22.16. Worship, the time that we've spent together this morning, we believe is a sacrament because Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or more are gathered, there I am also. So God joins us in this place. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act in which Jesus' body and blood, again, in a mysterious way, are offered to us to be eaten and drunk. You often hear phrases in Dale. Dale used them this morning. The bread which represents the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The cup which represents his shed blood on the cross. And so when we do that, we believe that we're communing with him and in remembrance of him. It is a symbolic act in which we can take the opportunity to communicate our deepest desires and thoughts to him. And the apex of it all is when we proclaim his death until he comes. Not his life, not the miracles, not the teachings, not even the resurrection, but the death. Why? Because it is central, it is the central message of our faith. Jesus died for us. God did not become the incarnate word just to teach us. He did not walk this earth just to show us his miraculous power. He did not die on the cross to show us that he is the Lord of life and resurrection. He came to die. He came to die as the sacrifice of our sins, the atonement which takes away our sin. The miracles help us believe. The teachings help us live. And the resurrection gives us hope. Don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not discounting the fact that he rose. But the sacrifice in death brings us salvation. We profit from his loss. 
Partaking in the Lord's Supper is to recognize that he died and that we needed him to do so. Partaking in the Lord's Supper is to celebrate his death. Not because death is exciting, but because his death secures life for those who have faith. And then partaking in the Lord's Supper is to bring visibility to what is now apparent. And that is that Jesus is coming back. You know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three now, Mark Davis asked me if I would help pass communion. I, I, I was excited. I haven't been able to do that in over 10 years because I've always been up here. Um, so anyway, last Sunday, we're passing the trays. And um, I'm back there at the back somewhere. And one of our newer members, uh, name is Danny Lujan. Danny's not here today, but I would have shared this anyway. He, he gets the tray and he takes the cup and he, and he holds it. And his eyes are closed. And I know he's meditating. I know he's focusing on that moment. And, and I hate to say it, but, but the, um, uh, the structured, you know, we got to keep this thing flowing kind of thing is like, okay, come on, guy. we we got to keep this thing flowing. Can't take time. And it's as if the spirit, I mean, boom, you know, just hit me upside the head and said, hey, just hold on. He's enjoying a holy moment. And, and, and I say that because that is something that we need to remember that every time we do that, we are meeting God in those elements. Every week, we have the opportunity to participate in the holiest of sacraments. Every week, we have the opportunity to commune with each other and our Lord. Every week, we have the privilege of remembering what we gained from Jesus' death. And every week, we have the honor, the obligation to proclaim his death until he comes. You know, some people say that taking communion on a weekly basis cheapens it. I don't think that at all. Quite the contrary. I believe that it escorts us into the very presence of God and unites us with him. And I can't think of any better place. For us to be than there. So we've already done it today, but next week we'll have another opportunity. And when you come to this table, come to eat, come to drink, and come to be merry. For the Lord has given us life. Amen. Let's stand and sing.